Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Career Design Podcast. And I'm super excited. I'm your host, Jennifer Turlick, and I'm here with our guest, Amy Bond. Amy had an awesome career transition, which I'm excited to hear more about. She went from being a full-time lawyer to now being the founder of Pole and Dance Studios, as well as continuing as a part-time lawyer. Super excited to have her on the show. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. And uh, (laughs) congratulations on your book. That is so exciting. Oh, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Um, Yeah, so we met, I guess now about... Oh, maybe six, even it might six, be six, six years ago. Six years ago at Camp Grounded in the Bay Area. Super cool uh, camp for those who haven't heard of it. It's like a digital detox, detox camp. Check your phones at the door, like super fun. Capture the flag, typewriters, amazing camp. That was such an awesome time. Eh? That was such an awesome time. And we actually didn't know each other's names for like the first four days that we hung out all, all the time together. So I think, I think that was, you know, it's such a San Francisco thing to be like, I need to pay somebody to take my phone away from me so that I could go gallivant around at like the Redwoods, but it was such a fun experience. And, um, and uh, like everyone we met at that camp has gone on to do just amazing things. So yeah, it was super cool. And I remember we were we were bus buddies. We were on the same bus. Yes. We were back <laughs> of the bus buddies. There were some notes passed. It was super <laughs> cool. And yeah, not knowing each other's names or occupations or, you know, any ages, like any biographical details except nicknames. Yeah. Was, uh, Wait, what was your nickname again? Mine was Spunky. Spunky. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and I yours... was Polarina. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Super cool. So yeah, that, that was a really awesome time. So yeah, thanks so much for joining us. I really would love to start with, um, you know, how did you, how did you make that career transition or like, where did your career start out and how did you get from there to where you are today? Yeah, I, that's such an interesting question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm watching Mad Men right now, and it it's very clear that like in the old days, there was like you started as like a copy editor, like assistant to a copy editor, maybe a secretary, and then you became junior copy editor, and then you became copy editor, and then maybe you become a creative director thirty years into your career, and like there's very like natural progressions for a career historically, I think, and. Um, And I don't know anybody today who has like a linear career progression and I'm no different than anyone else. So um, let's see where I started. I guess I graduated from um, Berkeley in 2009. It was the height of uh, like the last recession Um, at my graduation. That guy who Will Smith played in a movie, um, like about being a stockbroker was like the speaker at my graduation at Berkeley. And he talked about how, like, he's supposed to be a motivational speaker, but he basically was just like, you all are screwed. This job market is terrible. Like, good luck, but it's going to be hard for you. And that was like our motivational speech. And, um, yeah, so that, that was alarming. Um, I, 
I was like, well, I'll stay in school. I was interested in the law. Everybody I knew who was a lawyer, it was a type A kind of workaholic like me. And so I was like, well, I'm like those people. So I'll go to law school. And, um, so I did, I, I moved to Portland, Oregon. I lived there for a year, um, studying for the LSAT and then teaching other people how to take the LSAT with my first little, like small business. Um, and then I went to law school in Boston, graduated in 2013. The economy was much better. Um, and my husband and I moved back to the Bay area from Boston um, so that we could both start careers in tech. And, and I say start, I actually mean for me to start a career in tech and for Keith, my husband, to continue his career in tech because he'd worked in software at that point for 20 years. Um, I got my first job. I, I remember my first interview, I was like 27, uh, had just uh, passed the California bar exam. And I was being interviewed by these like 22 year olds, wonder kids who had like billions or, or sorry, millions of VC funding. And they would like interview me with like bare feet and just like chilling, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it was just like such a, a, a Silicon Valley experience. I started working in tech. I got my first tech job working for a, um, like a wealth management startup. They were going to disrupt wealth management. They're doing great. They're doing that disruption thing. Um, after that, I kind of got, um, addicted to the equity part of startups, the like, kind of like, you know, like go big or go home mentality of, of working in startups. And so I worked at four more after that first one. Um, and everybody was disrupting some old industry and I was along for the rocket ship, but at every startup I worked at, I think I was the ninth hire. And, um, so I got to be on a lot of rocket ships and watch other people build their businesses. Um, in 2013, uh, I was able to finally pay off my student loans. I had over $200,000 in law school loans, um, or sorry, 2016. So three years later, I was able to pay off my student loans. And it was only after I was able to pay off my student loans that I was able to sit back and kind of say, okay, like, what do I really want to do? And I loved working in startups. Uh, the part that I loved most about it was being able to build a business with other people. And, um, and so I kind of looked to the left and looked to the right. There were no other pole studios that were really doing a good job in the Bay area. And so I said, okay, I'm going to start my own pole studio. And, um, I started San Francisco pole and dance in 2016 while I was still working in a startup. So I did both. I would work at the startup kind of by day, 5 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then I would run over to or change browsers and then work on my pole studio um, from like, you know, five to midnight. And I kind of did that, did both for about um, for about six months um, before it was really clear that my studio was taking off and like it was time to kind of go all in on on the studio and expand and, and build into a bigger location, which we did three times. Um, and since then we've, we just opened our third location and kind of off to the races. Wow. That's amazing. So where yeah. are your locations? 
Uh, my first studio is still in San Francisco. So uh, everybody knows where California carpet on Folsom is. So right above California carpet on Folsom street in San Francisco, we've got a 3,500 square foot space with seven rooms, um, three pole studios, flexibility space, and an aerial space there. Our second location is in Oakland. So Oakland pole and dance is across the street from Lake Merritt in Oakland. And then our third location that will be actually opening for the first time after COVID restrictions are lifted is in Berkeley, which is just down the street from where I am right now. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. That's awesome. So how did you, so you were, you were working as a lawyer and you were Mm -hmm. working as a lawyer for a number of different uh, tech startups. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And like, how did you take us back to how you started thinking about opening your first studio, like how that became something you were interested in or like, were you dissatisfied with your work? Like, how did you decide to go about that? No, I mean, I loved working in startups. I thought it was really fun. I never felt, you know, I think a lot of people start their own thing because they feel like their soul is being sucked. Like you hear that phrase a lot. My soul was being sucked. Uh, I never had a sucking sensation of my soul. My soul actually always felt, but I'm just a worker. Like when I worked at Starbucks, I loved it. Like, you know, every job I've had, I've loved. So, um, you know, the, the, the parts that I think the parts that I don't love are when you work with people who are toxic. So the, you know, putting that part aside, like the actual work of any job I've had, I've really enjoyed. (laughs) And, um, And, uh, yeah, so I just never, I never had that, but I did know that I wanted to start my own business. I've, uh, you know, always been very, you know, they say that some people are just naturally entrepreneurial. Um, that's probably true for me. Uh, I tend to look at people's businesses and I don't think like, oh, that's such a nice thing. Or like, oh, that ice cream shop. I love, you know, let's call it Wendy's ice cream shop. And when I go to an ice cream shop, I'm like, how can we operationalize this and like make it more streamlined? You know? <laughs> I'm like, that's a great vanilla bean, but like, how can we tell a story so we sell more of it? You know? <laughs> that's awesome. So then how did you decide? So you knew you wanted to start your own thing. Oh, how I did you I decide wanted- what, mm-hmm. what you wanted to start or when? Yeah. Um, you know, in, in the Bay area, there are a lot of people who are starting cool things. Um, so after I had worked at, you know, a handful of startups, a lot of the people who I had used to work with at the startups before the, the last one started coming to me and saying, Hey, I want to, you know, I want to start my own thing. And I think you should run operations for it. And, and when I worked in tech, it was, it was legal, but it was also operations and, uh, some, HR and kind of like everything that wasn't engineering. So that's pretty common when you're the first non, non-technical, as they say, like non-technical in the sense of engineering is that you'll do basically everything except engineering. And then once you get a series, then you hire people to do work under you. Um, and so that was a pretty typical role for me as I would do operations. I kind of, I was, I loved when I would go into startups and the founders who are always like two engineers had never thought about workers' compensation and they'd never thought about like uh, how to 
create a spreadsheet around equity or use Carta or, you know, all the things that just kind of are, are the bucket of operations because they're so focused on building product. And um, so as people I had worked with started their own startups, they would ask me like, Hey, I, I would love for you to, to join this thing. And, um, and I just knew that I wanted to, like, I just knew that I wanted to build a pole studio. I had been pole dancing for six years. I took my first pole dance class, um, in the same day that I started law school. And by the time I was done with law school, I was, or I was organizing my law school schedule around when I wanted to be taking pole dancing classes. And I was going to New York every weekend so I could train with my favorite pole dancers. And I was competing in professional level competitions. And it just is like, what makes my heart sore. And, um, and the thing that was interesting about pole is that it's still like this burgeoning industry. It's a pole as recreation, as fitness, as, um, you know, a movement art that people pay for classes to go to has really only been around for about 10 years. Um, and so at that point in 2016, it's really only been around for six years and there wasn't anybody in the Bay area who was really doing it on a bigger level, who it, it was a lot of like 1000 square foot spaces with five poles in it. And, um, you know, somebody who just loved pole dancing. And so they started a business so that they could be pole dancing all the time, but there weren't very many people in the pole industry who had started a business because they loved operations and they loved business and they loved pole dancing. Like those three things, I guess, don't, often go together, um, but they do for me. And so I wanted to build a space where, um, you know, it wasn't just one small studio with three classes a day. It was a bigger thing, um, with multiple classes a day and customer service and a front desk and kind of like all the things you see in more traditional fitness spaces. And, um, and so I was able to acquire a studio that I had been a teacher at in 2016, they approached me and said, the previous owners, they said, Hey, you know, we, we never really wanted to run this business. The owner was a competitive pole dancer. She really wanted to just be pole dancing and found that doing the business side took all of her time. So she actually wasn't pole dancing as much as she wanted to. And I really wanted to build a business. And so it was perfect kind of opportunity to build a business in an industry that I love. And, um, and so I did basically, I, I drafted our asset purchase agreement, bought the, um, materials and, and took over the lease from them, rebranded as San Francisco pole and dance. And that's how we got started in our first space. And it was really hacky. It was like, you know, me and a friend painted the walls and like, I ordered a sticker that was like. 50 bucks. And and that was like our logo. And and like, I had paid a friend like a hundred bucks to do the logo. So it was all very like DIY scraped together. Like, um, like I think we spent a total for the asset purchase plus the, the, the actual, like the things in the space and taking over the lease. I think I spent 20 grand on that and that was it. So I was able to start the first studio with $20,000. Um, and I was like paying my instructors through Venmo for the first six months before we really got, got going, um, and professionalizing. 
Oh, wow. That's, a, that's amazing. And how did you go from, um, from that to where you are today with the three studios? Yeah. I mean, I think it was just a lot of trial and error. So once, uh, you know, it's, it's fine to pay instructors through Venmo if you have four instructors, but once you have 50 instructors and, um, the California laws changed quite a bit between 2016 and 2020 in terms of employment status. So, um, you know, this big court case called Dynamex, um, happened at the California Supreme court level that meant that it was that all of these drivers would need to be reclassified as um, employees rather than contractors. And that affected my industry as well as very clear to me that we needed to be paying our instructors as employees. So we got set up with like all of the HR software that you need to do that. And, um, and, uh, you know, we were really just busting at the seams in terms of we had eight poles and then this small side area. And we ran two classes at the, at a time. And we had like, we're, you know, approaching the fire code limits of how many people could be in the space and had wait lists for our classes within like three months. So I talked to the building owners and they get, then I expanded into a bigger space down the hall. And then another space next to that space became available like a year ago. So I was able to expand into another pole studio. And so the expansion, I got really lucky with the space that I'm in and the landlords that I have, because the expansion ended up being pretty easy in that it was in the same building and as the one that we started in, in the small studio we started in and, um, Honestly, I feel like my landlords have been along with me for the ride. Like <laughs> They're so excited about the success of my business. And that honestly, I, I have pretty terrible landlords at another location. And it really does affect like the morale of the team and how you're able to feel about the space and, and grow the business. And so, um, uh, that was one part that was really, I think mattered a lot more than I could have expected is having these kind of people who are rooting me on, who are actively involved in my success, like everyone from my landlords to students who became instructors to instructors who I have one instructor who became my general manager and now is my right-hand person. And they're, you know, basically the COO of the studios and helped me run everything. Oh, so, that's so cool. Yeah, it was just very iterative. Like there was no big, like I come in and everything's operationalized. It was just keep chipping away at it every day and until you get a little bit better and a little bit better. And how did you get it to the point where you were having waiting lists and everything like within months of opening? What do you think it was that led to that? Uh, so it was a couple of things. One is that there was, that I entered a market that didn't already have a really, a, a really big studio to go to. I think, um, San Francisco just ended up being the city, like the one city in America that didn't have a studio that was big and had a lot of options in terms of more advanced level classes and didn't have a lot of instructors. And my, my guess about why that is the case is because San Francisco real estate is just so expensive and it's hard to get a lease and very few people or very few landlords are going to take on an artistic business when their alternative is to rent to 
a startup that has millions of dollars in funding that can do both a down payment and the first year's rent within with cash upfront. And, yeah. you know, San Francisco it, pre-COVID, I, I do wonder how this will change after COVID, but I think San Francisco has just, um, the art scene has really suffered. And the building that I'm in had four dance studios when I moved in and now we're the only one left. And that was before COVID hit. So, um, you know, the, all the other spaces that were dance studios are now occupied by startups. And I think that is something that's happening to the art scene across the Bay area, and probably most other metropolitan cities, though COVID is going to change that landscape because of work from home and all of that. Oh, interesting. And yeah. how did you end up going from um, having the one in San Francisco to then opening your second or in Oakland and then your third in Berkeley? Yeah, so both of those are slightly different stories. Um, our second studio in Oakland, we really just opened that because we had so many students coming from Oakland commuting to San Francisco. I had one, one woman tell me she worked in San Francisco but she had a cat that needed to like have medication at like 4 PM every day. And so she would leave work at three, go home and give her cat medication at four and then go all the way back across the Bay bridge. So she could come take classes at our studio and then go back home to Oakland. And I remember just thinking like, wow, that's a lot of friction to go through <laughs> to take a active flexibility class at Poland dance studios. And, but I started hearing a lot of like, not that extreme of stories, but a lot of like, yeah, you know, I live in Oakland, but I come, I travel here for classes and, um, probably like crossing a bridge doesn't sound crazy to people in other places, but crossing the Bay bridge at rush hour is like quite a, you're really like undertaking something <laughs> like that's a good hour commute to get a, to cross a bridge and come from the, from the East Bay to San Francisco. And, um, students were doing it because they loved our classes and they loved our instructors. And, um, and so it was clear that we did like a survey that showed 25% of our students were coming from the East Bay. And that's when we decided, okay, let's, let's look into real estate in the East Bay. And, and then that led us to open our, our next studio Oakland in 2018. So just shy of two years later. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. The Berkeley one. So the Berkeley studio is slightly different. Um, I moved to Berkeley shortly after I opened the Oakland studio. My husband and I bought a house here and Berkeley and Oakland are, are very close to each other. Um, and then COVID hit in 2020 and all of these small businesses, especially fitness studios have been statistically have been found to be the most impacted by financially by COVID. Um, so a lot of small businesses and small, um, fitness studios started closing, um, permanently. So not just closing for COVID, but closing permanently. And, um, my friend, Kristen Brown, who owned a studio in Berkeley, uh, and I were talking and she said, you know, I'm getting ready to make a lot of big life changes. My husband and I recently bought a house farther outside. So they're not in Berkeley anymore. And I've really been reevaluating my priorities and I don't think I want to run the studio anymore. And I think I'm going to close it. And I was like, well, uh, can we talk about your financials? <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> I was like, tell me about your student base. Tell me about your operational costs. Tell me about your rent price. And it ended up being that her studio was like an excellent deal. Um, so I, um, I did another asset purchase agreement, purchasing the assets from her um, and taking over a, a new lease with her landlord. And, um, and we've been over the last three months, been building out Berkeley Poland Dance, and it's finally ready for when restrictions are lifted to reopen instead of as Phoenix, a, a Phoenix, uh, aerial art and pole is the old name. Um, it will be reopening as Berkeley Poland Dance. So that's the, the third location. And we're really excited to get started. The entire instructor team who worked at that studio before, most of them had worked there for over 10 years. So, um, you know, that, that they've really created a community and a, a special place where a lot of the same people have been coming for years. And um, luckily, we're able to retain most of those instructors um, as we have an eye on reopening. That's great. So during Wait. COVID time, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I just want to say, going back to your question about, like, why do I think that the the classes were selling out so much. I think the first part is that there is a, a vacuum of really good studios. But then the second part is that the instructors who have hired and who are in the Bay Area are, are just incredible instructors. And um, I think uh, Soul Cycle, which is a cycling brand, really capitalized on, on this concept about 10 years ago as well, when they first started getting going as, as a cycling studio, but what their research and, and they're a little bit more sophisticated. I'm just me, just a dude building a business, but soul cycles, like got McKinsey on, on, you know, call and, and they're, I believe on by Equinox and a lot of their research found that the reason, the number one reason people go back to classes is because their instructors are excellent. And so we did a lot around developing our instructors and, and taking the instructors that people already loved and making sure that they were well-paid and well-paid as employees and given great benefits so that they wanted to work for us. And, um, and I, I honestly, that's probably the number one reason that people come to our studios and our classes because the instructor team is second to none. Oh, that's amazing. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, you said something that I found really interesting, which was that, you know, you've always been like a worker bee, if I remember the words correctly, and that you've loved every job you've ever done. I actually haven't really heard that from anyone before that I oh, really? No. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty cool. Could you tell us more about that? Like, I'd love to hear more about, you know, how that came about, if it's always been that way, or if you have any tips for people to yeah, yeah. have that mindset. Um, it's a, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think some of it probably is just to do with, I really like people and most jobs are working with people. <laughs> so, if you find, you know, there are some people who could be slightly obnoxious, but most people are just fascinating to me. And if I get to spend time with a person, I'm usually going to uncover something fascinating about them that I can learn from. And I think that's kind of how I approach most uh, interactions with other people is just like, okay, what do you have to teach me? Like, I want to learn something cool from you. And I think that's kind of like the thing in the back of my mind. So, you know, like whether it's 
people in Silicon Valley who are building cool companies. Or I worked at this one startup that was doing software for, um, for construction workers. And so I would go teach construction workers how to use the software. And every single one of them was like fascinated, whether they were like outside of the Arctic tundra in Alberta, Canada, and they're, they'd been working a forklift for 40 years, or whether it's like the dude who started Blue Bottle, like people are, are so interesting. And, um, and being around people and learning from people just like lights me on fire. So that's probably where that comes from. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and then the other question I had about something you mentioned is, you know, going from going from being a lawyer to an entrepreneur, although I understand you still um, practice law a bit on the side, which I'd love to hear more about too. Um, but going from a lawyer and you'd mentioned, you know, being able to pay off, I think it was $200,000 in debt in three years. That's pretty amazing. So obviously it was well, like- yeah. a- Let's actually talk about that because it's okay. actually it's actually not that amazing in that like I had a personal success. It's amazing in that like uh, one of the startups that my husband worked at, and I do think it's annoying that it's the startup my husband worked at and not a startup that I worked at. But either way, um, we basically like struck gold. Like the the startup did really well. It got acquired by a big corporation, and then we basically had like a bucket of money rain on us. And so I was able to pay off my law school loans. If I hadn't been able to do that, I still would have had a $4,000 a month or $3,500 a month after I refinanced my student loans through Sophie. So if I, I, um, I probably wouldn't have been able to start my own business. Like until that was paid off, I had, you know, $4,000 a month in, in rent because it's the Bay area and that's what you pay for a studio apartment. And I had uh, 35 to $4,000 a month payment for student loans for law school. And after you take those two expenses out of, you know, that double income, you end up not having a ton left over. And that's even from two people who make over six figures in the Bay Area. So, um, so I would say that was really more a stroke of luck than anything else where how many people work at startups, how many people actually like strike the gold pot. It's very gold rush mentality here today in San Francisco. And, um, we were really lucky, um, and hard work really had nothing to do with that. Besides that, we both were just really addicted to this kind of world of instable jobs <laughs> instead of like working at a Google and making like a steady income. We we're both like, let's work for as little as possible and, and a lot of equity everywhere we go. Um, and so after four to five years of that, we were, we struck the, struck the gold mine. Oh, that's amazing. Through like, like you're saying, having equity at different companies and then yeah. Yeah. Some of them doing really well. That's yeah, awesome. I, yeah. I mean, and it's a long horizon too. Like the one startup that got acquired, we got paid out quickly, but you know, most of the startups I worked at that I have equity in still haven't been acquired are doing quite well, but haven't been acquired yet. And like, you know, that will probably pay off over like a, you know, closer to a 10 year horizon than a, a three year one. Hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. I guess nonetheless, um, 
So that, that was a really fortunate uh, opportunity. But then going from like, yeah, you know, well-paid lawyer, like making over six figures to contemplating being an entrepreneur, what was the thought process like, or were you worried? Um, did that hold you back? Or is that why you did it like part-time or like, what, what was it like? Yeah, I do think um, a lot of people have said to me, oh, you must be such a risk taker. You're an entrepreneur. You take a lot of risk. That's so, um, that's so inspiring. Or, oh, I hate that word. And, uh, or like so cool. And I don't know, like, actually, I think there's a lot of like myths that our country is founded on, like the myth of the hard worker, the myth of the bootstrapper, the myth of like, you work hard, and then you'll succeed in the world. And like, in this, like, uh, you know, hyper pumped capitalist world we live in, where like, you know, three corporations, like, run the entire country, like, that Wall Street's totally disentangled from like how everyday people actually live their lives. And we've seen that through COVID more than anything, you know, people at bread lines are longer than ever. And like the stock market's rallying, like it makes no sense. Um, unless those two things have nothing to do with each other, which we're, we're seeing right now. Um, so I, I guess, yes, I'm a risk taker, but I also waited until I was quite stable before I took a risk. So like how big of a risk was it? You know, like I still have one foot in the door in terms of I work now with six different startups who as a consultant. So I do legal work for startups in a consulting capacity for equity, because like, that's the thing that gets me hot. And, um, but like, I could go back to working a salary job very quickly if I wanted to. And I, I think a lot of people who start businesses are already wealthy. And so I, I don't want to like perpetuate the idea that like, yeah, like, if, you know, put, put a hundred grand on black 42 and like, you'll win too. You just have to put yourself out there. Cause that's bullshit. And like most people who start companies, I think already have a level of stability and financial security that most people in the world will never see. And I am one of those people. So I don't think it was actually that risky. Um, it was just something I really wanted to do. And at the end of the day, when I'm making a decision about what I want to do next, it's, um, is this a cool story? Is this going to be really fun? And the answer to those two questions about starting a, a pole dance empire is yes, let's go. <laughs> so <laughs> well, those are really good questions to ask oneself. And yeah, makes makes total sense. So speaking of the pole dance empire, what what's next for it? Yeah, well, I just bought a house in Portland. So I am talking to studio owners in um, the Portland, uh, Oregon area about um, taking over their businesses and um yeah, and if those don't come to fruition, I'll probably start my own. And every time I go up to my house in Portland, I walk down the street looking in like open retail spaces, which there are quite a few of right now. And uh, just looking for the ones that have high ceilings. And so Portland, Poland Dance will probably be the next one. And I'll just keep doing what I'm doing, hopefully at a bigger and bigger scale. That's so cool. And what motivates you to, uh, to keep opening more or like, be, you know, looking in those windows and that sort of thing? Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> Inertia. 
because I've been doing it and I know how to do it. I just keep doing it. Maybe. No, I really believe in pole dancing. I really, it really did change my life in terms of, um, you know, it's just in this Netflix documentary called strip down, rise up. And it's about, um, women's empowerment through pole dancing, And it's actually quite controversial in the pole community. Many people who are pole dancers don't feel represented by this movie, Um, but I'm in it and I am represented by this movie. My personal story is in it. And, um, and one of the things that pole really did for me is it like reconceptualized my relationship to my body. And I can't, became a lot less about like, what does my body look like in the world? And became a lot more of like, what is the cool things I can do with my body? And wow, look at this strength that I have that I never knew that I could have. And you, and we're still in a world that tells women that they can't do pull-ups. Like the New York times, like four years ago, published a piece about like why women are terrible at pull-ups. Like the ever enduring myth of like women aren't strong is like everywhere. When, when you look for it and, and subconsciously all around us. So I got really excited by like all this cool stuff I could do with my body. And then I started realizing that every studio I went to was run by a woman. Like there, there were basically no men. And so there's this like extreme dichotomy in my life of like being in the legal profession and then working in tech, which is mostly male dominated to being in pole dance studios, which is like mostly 95% women and like bad bitches who are like throwing themselves upside down in the air. And like, you know, the studio that I first went to, I became really close to, um, shout out to Boston pole fitness in Boston. Um, the owner was, um, of Boston pole fitness was building her pole studio. And then I met another friend who wanted to build one in North shore. And I was meeting these people who wanted to build like a female focused industry, um, around like women's strength. And so many people I met through pole dancing became my closest friends and like my rider dies, my greatest cheerleaders and like. Um, it was like that spirit of community of women supporting women, um, that felt just made me feel like I could fly. And I wanted to bring that kind of community to other cities. So we started in San Francisco and it was awesome. And, and it definitely has become that. And in the middle of the most male dominated tech capital of the world, like there's on Folsom and eighth, like a block this way from Twitter and a block this way from Airbnb, there's this like you know, women's empowerment situation happening at San Francisco pole and dance. And, and so many people are like finding jobs because they like pole dance next to somebody who knows somebody who can get them, you know, like the, and it becomes a really um, tight knit and close community of people supporting each other. And then we did the same thing in Oakland. And I see those groups form in my classes and, and I get to kind of watch them flourish and grow on social media outside of class. And, and I have no doubt that we'll do the same thing in Berkeley and then in Portland and then whatever comes next. And so, um, those communities are the thing that drive me. I love building community for women. That's amazing. And you've still kept law as a part of your life, right? Can you say a bit more about that and how you decided to do that? Yeah. So, um, So I work with startups, um, and that's probably 10 hours a week that I, um, 
and I just really like startups. <laughs> like I love that all the founders I meet are like slightly insane. And, um, you know, they like, you know, I have one who wants to build a LinkedIn for artists. And I have another one of my startups like one is doing IOT and like wants to put a connected device on like every single thing that exists in the world and like build the infrastructure for that. And it's like, those are both really lofty goals. And it kind of takes somebody who's a little insane to build big things like that. And, um, and so I just really like working with founders and being able to bring like the kind of dry side to things like, Hey, um, you know, you and your friend are on really good terms now while you're in the infancy stage of wanting to build your business. But did you know that 80% of startups fail because of founders disputes? Like let's get a founder's agreement going, baby. You know, like it's like, it's really fun for me. And I just like, um, being like, kind of like still being able to help other people build their things. Cause I know how lonely it can be as a founder too. Like it's, uh, you're the one paying the checks at the end of the day and, and, and probably not getting paid for the first five to seven years of it. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, that's, that's really nice of you to do that. And then what does your time for the studios and, uh, that whole area, I guess you're running stuff virtually right now. So what does your time spent on that company uh, look like? Yeah. So, uh, right now this, with the studios closed, you would think that it, there's no work to be done, but it almost feels like there's more work to do when your businesses are closed than when they're open. Um, a lot of the work lately has been around building out the Berkeley studio and, and, you know, rallying the team and getting them excited for what a new chapter in the spaces, you know, future looks like and building out curriculum. And we do, another arm of our business has been really focused around teacher trainings because that's been uh, a hard thing for me is as we've expanded our student base really quickly, I've, I've also found myself teaching so many of the classes and, and once you have four, three or four locations, like you can't just, you just can't zip around everywhere and teach as much as I have been. So, um, building out teacher trainings to get new instructors, um, onboarded and teaching in our studios has been like my biggest thing lately, especially as we're starting to open our, our outdoor patio classes at our Oakland studio. And as we look with an eye, probably three weeks into April, we'll be opening, um, with limited classes, um, in San Francisco, Oakland, and Berkeley. So getting our teacher team really trained and up and running has been a big focus, um, and my guess will is it will continue to be a focus because I really think as people haven't been moving much in 2020 and, and through this COVID period that, um, people are going to be really recommitting to fitness and, and pole dancing and, and all the kinds of fitness that are besides pole dancing once, um, the vaccines are widely distributed and things have reopened a bit more. So, um, a lot of it is planning a lot of the original things we were doing when COVID first hit was, okay, what do we do if, you know, we're still closed in May? And that was like a two month period. And we had all these plans and, and then California came out with all of these cleaning regulations for studios. So I was in the studio with my 
my general manager, Josh, like trying out these different kinds of sprays and seeing how they worked on the floors and do they make it harder for dancers to move or pivot on their, you know, a four starch. And, and so like very granularly, like cleaning has become a big, um, a kind of very fascinating world because there's so much of it required in a, in a post pandemic era. Um, yeah. So that's, that's like a sample of the things. Wow. So many different things. That's really interesting. It's like each day seems to have uh, different aspects to it. Yeah. And it makes it very fun. You know, I'm usually at my computer um, between seven and nine working through, you know, the never ending slog of email and, and, and then from nine to 11, I try to be very dedicated on like curriculum development or teacher training development or something that is uh, a little less reactive and a little bit more building. Um, and then and there's usually two or three classes throughout the day that are two or three private lessons throughout the day that I'll end up teaching and um, coordinating with my instructor team and my general managers that is another two to three hours. So, you know, it's a lot of um, my favorite thing, which is working with people. <laughs> That's awesome. And you said there's going to be patio classes soon, or there are patio classes? Yeah. Starting this Wednesday, our Oakland studio has an outdoor space. So last year we put, they're called stage poles. We put these five stage poles outside on our patio and we had, and they're all distanced. So they're socially distanced and we have classes outside in the backyard and it actually ends up feeling a lot like summer camp because there's these big trees that are kind of like hanging over the poles and like ch chestnuts or like acorns will like drop from them and then these squirrels will like run out and pick up the acorns and you're like oh don't mind the squirrel while you're like throwing yourself upside down on a pole you know so it's been very fun to have that space and kind of like doing pole outside introduces all of these other things that you wouldn't expect. So we'll have those classes started for people who aren't yet comfortable for, for going indoors, probably through the entire summer until it, it gets dark again. Oh, that's amazing. So we've got outdoor classes, indoor classes happening soon, all, all sorts of fun. Well, Amy, yeah. thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I definitely learned a lot and uh, it was super great having you on the show. Yeah, this has been so much fun chatting with you, Jen. Yeah, thanks so much.